anarthas, like obstacles in spiritual life, is called Tatva Vibram. I would think about that. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> this means misunderstandings about how I see the world, how I see reality. And one subcategory of this is called Sadhya Sadhana Brahm. What is the aim of practice? And what is a spiritual practice? Sometimes practitioners, they give themselves satisfied with very simple patterns. Oh, yeah, I'm a soul and spiritual world. Finished. It's very interesting. In the end of ninth canto, Parikshit Maharaj asks, so what is Krishna Lila? Uh -huh. And Shukadev Goswami gave two verses. Yeah, you know, Krishna took birth and then he went to Mathura and then Varaka. Finish. <laughs> Who taught but, it like that? Because he asks. But you know, it needs a certain point of dissatisfaction. <laughs> if he would say, yes, that's wonderful, die. <laughs> of the yeah, then there will be no tenth canto. <laughs> then he wouldn't continue. So, but it's only because Pariksha said, wait, wait, wait. I know this is very important. Can you differentiate? Can you give more? And only then the, the mystery is opening. So this is what we do the rest of our life now and also this evening. <laughs> <laughs> this means we are not never satisfied with all understandings we ever had. And whenever we meet some bhakta, we don't go just and say, hello, what is your name? Who is your guru? <laughs> <laughs> How many rounds? <laughs> which yeah. mission do you belong to? Yes, which mission do you belong? <laughs> which club do you belong? But there's so many wonderful, intriguing things to ask and discuss. And then slowly, slowly, the main obstacle of our existence can be solved. Sadhya, sadhana, brahm. What is the real, what is the practice? What is the sadhya, the aim? Will be much more differentiated, not just communistic slogans. Sometimes one can practice spiritual life with communistic slogans, you know, they were just shouting on the street. And so. This was a little upakram. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You agree? Yes. Magyanati Mirandasya Gyanam Janashalakaya. Chakshudan Militam, the Natashman Shri Gudavi Nama Namashrishtam Manuma, Pisachiputram, Matrasarupam, 
ರೂಪಂ ತಾಗ್ರಜಮುರೂಪುರಿಂ ಮಾಥುರಿಂ ಗೋಷ್ಠಾವತಿಂ ರಾಧಾಕುಂಡಂ ಗಿರಿಪುರಾಧಿಕಮಧಾವಶಂ ಪ್ರಾಪ್ತೋ ಯಶ್ಯಾತೀತ್ರೀಪಾಯೀಗುರು ತನ್ನತಸ್ಮೇ ಪಂಚಕಲ್ಪತರೂಭ್ಯಶ್ಯಾಕೃಪಾಸಿಂಧುಭ್ಯಚಿತಾಪದಪಂಕಜಂತಜೀಮುಕ್ತಕುಲ
Krishna Lila is wor more worthy than only two verses. <laughs> Please elaborate. And from then we have 90 chapters minimum. And then two more cantos to reflect back upon what the 90 chapters mean. And all that sprang from Parikshit's asking for more, basically. Which is re reminds me similarly the dynamic of Ramananda Sambhat. Because you also talk about Satya Sadhana Brahm. No illusion regarding the goal and the practice. And Mahaprabhu is asking Ramananda Roy, instruct me about Sadhya Sadhana Tattva. No? Like as an attempt to counteract Sadhya Sadhana Brahm. No? Instruct, me, instruct me about the truth of the goal and how to achieve the goal. And he will exhibit a similar Parikshit like <laughs> symptom when Ramananda will say something, Mahaprabhu will add. That's superficial, please go deeper. And he will say something else in Mahaprabhu again. Many times he will repeat the same. Please augment that truth. What you are saying is truth, but augment the truth. Unfold, expand. Till a point with... Next level. Yeah, next level. 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. <laughs> Yeah, so and, and and in this way we have the unfolding of this Chaitanya Charitamrita, which is one of the most important sections. Sometimes this Ramananda Sambhadi is compared to the like the Bhagavad Gita in the Mahabharat. So without the Bhagavad Gita, Mahabharat kind of loses its purpose. So without this Ramananda Sambhadi, the Chaitanya Charitamrita is lacking something very profound. And the dynamics again are Sambhad, which means. <clears throat> conversation questions and answers it's so important to to counteract the all the vicious forms of speak no <laughs> sometimes we are just as we talked the other day floating in an ocean of jalpambitanda no <laughs> which means eh, maybe i talk to you and i hear you but i'm just waiting for my turn to say my thing but I'm polite enough to allow you to say something. So I like, mm, but I'm just like looking the the clock. Like when is my turn to say the actual real thing here? No? But I'm polite. I'm I'm diplomatic. I allow you to say something. Or even worse, if you go to Bitanis, I don't allow you to talk at all. I'm just like jumping on you and just vomiting my monologue, so to say. No? So sometimes we think that dialogue is to people speaking, but it's to people hearing as well. Because you can have simultaneous monologue and two people talking nonstop <laughs> and not hearing and not being willing to change by the topic of the conversation. So that's the ideal type of conversation, bada or sambada, which means I'm not trying to defeat you. I'm not trying to convert you. I'm trying to be defeated by truth. And the other person is thinking the same. We are not competing with one another, but we are both willing to be converted by truth, whatever it may take us. Probably it will take us outside of our comfort zone, but that's the commitment of this interaction. So these questions and answers is also part of that. No, Both parts are signing that contract, so to say. It's not just a formality, like I have to have a very like interesting question for Maharaj this evening. So I 
I seem very advanced or very high. You know, it's, it's about asking as honestly as we can about things that are concerning our personal particular situation. Uh, like I remember once that happened with Srila Bhakti Pramod Puri Maharaj and the devotees were in front of him and they were trying to like forcibly present questions that were were not natural for where they were internally. And Srila Purimash could detect that and, and kind of back them because Srila Purimash was so humble. So he was like, please ask me a question that is like corresponding to your inner reality. Don't try, don't, don't feel forced to, to be more advanced than what you are in front of me. Please, I don't need that. And you don't need that either. <laughs> Let's be as honest as we can. So when questions come from that place, naturally answers will, the question itself will evoke some type of answer from a sincere, equally sincere place and the combination will be hopefully magical. <laughs> and, and both sides will find themselves hearing, witnessing something that is beyond themselves. Like, wow, here the absolute truth has descended. That was how Krishna basically describes Sadhu Sangha in the Chatur Shloki of the Bhagavad Gita. No? He says, Katayantas Chamam Nityam Tushyanti Charamanti Chapodayanta Parashparam. No? They are enlightening one another, talking about me, nourishing each other, experiencing higher taste between each other mutually, back and forth. Krishna becomes present, fully manifest in that moment. There's this famous story of these two bhaktas from the Ramanuja Sampradaya, maybe you know it, they were the two of them in traveling. And when Chaturmasya started in India, they ended up in a cave without being willing, able to move forward, so to say. And the two of them were in a cave, a like day like today, dark, a candle like this one <laughs> in the cave. And they were like very intimately and vulnerably opening their hearts and sharing their hearts with one another and talking about <clears throat> their common center, so to say. And at one point, one of them told the other, I mean, we are only two in this cave, but I feel the presence of a third one here. Mm -hmm. And the other person say, you know what? I feel the exactly the same as you. I feel that there's a third person with us here. And the two of them concluded, and that third person is the one we are talking about now, mm -hmm. the two of us. <laughs> So Bhagavan joins the conversation. He cannot resist, basically. So just a little bit more of introduction and context so we don't take these meetings for granted. There are very extraordinary sacred moments. And as Krishna Chandra Prabhu mentioned, hopefully these moments is just but a reflection of how we are trying to live all our lives. We start bit by bit, moment by moment, and gradually, hopefully, extending that on a Kirtaniya Sadahari format, like non-stop currents. Well, we have to start somewhere, so here we are. <laughs> so if you have any questions, something you would like to share, we know Shanti has two. I, I think so. Probably at this point, she has five or seven, but in the morning, she had two only. Oh, you have one from yesterday. Okay. So who starts? The question from yesterday or the question from no. this morning? No, 
question from Sunday night. From Sunday night, yeah, you're right. Um, you want uh, one for me and one for him. Uh-huh. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes to both. Um uh, I said first in English. Um I listened to the recorded class since I missed the Sunday evening class and um you were explaining uh, about your favorite place in Puri and about and how Kadadala was still uh, after Chaitanya Mahaprabhu left this world was worshipping them and you said two or three times um that Tota Gopinath is the proof, or maybe I didn't understand correctly, but mm. I understood you said Tota Gopinath is the proof that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu succeeded in his mission. And I didn't get why is this a proof that he succeeded. Because you said like he went into the deity. His heart was in the deity, something like that. And this is the proof that he succeeded. Mm -hmm. I didn't get why this is the proof. And now I'll quickly she asked me yeah. said, um the babies mission Oh, that was a quick translation in German. Um, yeah, Swiss Germanist. Okay, I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was the opposite. The few times I heard the translation, I thought the German but will. Yeah, the Baba Novat, Baba Novat. Yeah. <laughs> so, does anyone remember the answer to Shanti's question? Yeah, we were mentioning how the deity first appeared in the heart, in Samadhi, and then it takes in like an external form. So somehow we're making this connection between what happened in Mahaprabhu's heart and how that took an external form of Astota Gopinath, which showed, which is Krishna, somehow as relished in Radhabhav by Mahaprabhu. So that manifested externally and Gadadhar Pandit is worshipping the heart of Mahaprabhu appearing in that external form, worshipping the success of Mahaprabhu because Tota Gopinath is a, like a concrete proof like, okay, Krishna entered into Radhabhav as Mahaprabhu and that shows externally in the form of how, again, how Krishna, Mahaprabhu is tasting Krishna through the mood of Radha 
sorry if it sounds a little bit too complete, too many words, but that's how it happened. <laughs> way those ladies looked it was clear okay so that's what's in his heart what yeah we can see now. yeah basically it has yeah the, the idea was like again the experience was first in Mahaprabhu's heart to say that Mahaprabhu as you know the stories without the Gopin that he and unearthed unearthed like how do you say in English like discovered, discovered the deity in the in the gardens of Tota Gopinath, Meshwar Tota, and it gave that to Gadadhar. No? But at that point, of course, Mahaprabhu was already in his Radhavav project, so to say. So that which was already in his heart eventually was given to Gadadhar in an external form, representing what's, what's going on in Mahaprabhu's heart. So we will say that Gadadhar Pandi will worship Tota Gopinath, see Tota Gopinath, and see there what's going on in the heart of Mahaprabhu, basically, on a daily basis. And, and the more Mahaprabhu is progressing in his tasting of Radhavab, the more that will be reflected in Tota Gopinath. Because maybe for us, Tota Gopinath will, see, will look always the same, <laughs> but not for Gadada. <laughs> so he will like witness the progress of his students, so to say. <laughs> I will worship that. Because Kadada is worshiping Tota Gopina. It's clear? Yeah. Okay. Second question for Krishna Chandra. Yeah, the, you want to add something? Just, no, just we mentioned also there um, that actually this is a process that happens with every one of us, that the deity appears really first in the heart of a bhakta also, and then you see, and then you really see Krishna. So the same thing happened in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's inner mood. So, you know, Krishna appeared and then he manifested externally. And during Kata, he was like doing like this. And suddenly, Tode Gopinath came out. Mm -hmm. So it's like, Chaitanya Maharaj mentions this, mm -hmm. how the, the deity appears first in the Chitta of a Bhakta. Mm -hmm. yeah. May I ask, is it the does the deity appear in the heart of the devotee that installs the deity or in all people who see the deity like because i'm asking because before i came here for the first time i don't remember having seen you know krishna in my heart what is it and then they appear here so. <laughs> I think, you know, now we see a form and we put this form with the senses little inside and we start worshipping him inside and then he starts appearing in the heart and then we see not the deity then we see Pratima Nahitumi Sakshat Prajendranana and we see directly Krishna Would you Second question for Krishna yeah. Chandra. Um, and you answer. This uh, morning, um, at the introduction, he shared the Lila with Bhupana and how Krishna liberated her and also um, gave a similar um, mercy to her brother or brothers. I'm not sure it was. Uh -huh. Two brothers. Mm -hmm. And this confused me because um, 
in our mission or whatever, or also often I hear it from you, Krishna Chandra. Um, at the beginning, I was pretty shocked. You sometimes even said I wouldn't cry a tear when my parents die, but you know, when a guru dies or a god brother, this is like a very different, this is a relevant relationship in our life as family members, they come together for a blink, you know, just in, in compared in this time we're in, it's just um, a few seconds that we're brothers or sisters or parents, children. So totally irrelevant, you know, and you always say we're never going to meet again, um, that we only meet one time. So yeah, don't put too much emphasis. And I kind of understand this, like I, even in my life before coming here, there's people I feel closer to than I feel to my parents where we share common values and all that. But you always said it in a very extreme way. And then I was surprised when this morning you mentioned that Krishna also said, oh, but she has these two brothers. So I also liberate. So how come we're not, you know, we're saying that these relationships are irrelevant, but how come then God picks the two brothers if these relations are very irrelevant in a way? So how come for God it seems relevant because he could have picked the neighbors or the dog if she had one or why, why would God then say, oh, she has two brothers, let's... Because Und das hat mich ein überrascht, weil ich Christian schon immer sagt, das ist ja total irrelevant, ähm, Brüder, Geschwister, Eltern, weil, sagt ja immer, wir sehen uns nie mehr wieder, wir sind zufällig zusammengewürfelt worden, oder vom Karma her, aber nachher sind ja die Beziehungen, wir sehen uns nie mehr, also du hast deine Mutter nie mehr gesehen, sie, und so weiter. Und mir hat es überrascht, wieso das denn Gott, äh, irgendwie eine Relevanz der Beziehung hat, wieso hat er dann auch ihre zwei Brüder befreit, wenn ja die Beziehungen gar nicht relevant sind. So wie das wir häufig da hören, wieso das in den Augen von Gott dann die zwei Brüder auch noch befreit hat, wieso nicht ihre Nachbarn oder das Hündchen, oder das Hündchen wenn sie einen gehabt oder sonst, wieso, wieso der die Brüder ausgewählt hat, wenn das I'm amazed how detailed you listen. <laughs> Wonderful. So, but my understanding is that we discussed yesterday on Vamandev's appearance day how this Putana in her previous life, she was the daughter of Bali, and she had so much love and raga to Vamanadeva. And at a certain point when Vamanadeva took away everything from Bali, she wanted to poison him. So these two desires, re in the next life she became Putana and she could 
I have so much love. I want to give my breast to him. I want to give my love to him, but also I want to poison him. This is as Putana. So, but Krishna is like this Bhava Grahija Nardana. He, he looks at the essence of our being. You know, there may be insincerity, but there's a drop of sincerity. He looks at that. This is a wonderful, wonderful quality. Krishna is also Saragrahi, like you said this morning, an essence seeker. And Chaitanya Charitamrita says one should be like a bee. You know, he flies, there's so much dirt, she just flies to the flowers. But the fly, don't look at the flowers, go to the dirt. So it's different mentalities. So Krishna is like this bee. You know, he's, there's a lot of strange thing, but there's some sincerity, and he's never forgetting that. So that's why he, you know, he elevated Putana very much. But the brothers, they were not liberated because they were just brothers, because they had an appreciation for someone who in a previous life had extreme sincerity, and Krishna is not even forgetting this. You know, it's like Putana entered his heart by that. And now, not just because they appreciated her, if the dog would appreciate her, they, you know, everyone gets some uh, elevation. Yeah, yeah, and it's not because being brother, but because of being, have affection. So this just shows how powerful this principle is. We discussed how Sar, um, Ananya Mamata Vishnu Bhakti mean, Prema love means have one pointed love towards Krishna about Mamata Prema Sangata, but the things also which you are in connection to him. This is everything. But then Krishna says, oh, really? I look, I will react now towards you in the same way. I love you, one-pointed. But things who love you and I also love. <laughs> Will you add something more? This principle is deep. Yeah. I, I agree with your point and that shows like yeah how krishna is so biased towards bhakti whatever bhakti is he feels so attracted without discrimination so to say <laughs> uh, but yeah i mean it was his answer it was his his answer to your question so i yeah, I appreciate that point on the if one has some slight connection with someone who even in a previous life, no, like that shows how Krishna's appreciation go beyond the fact of oh no, it was not in this lifetime, it was in the previous one. I mean Krishna's not like calculating in that way. Again, I say he's bad at, at math. <laughs> yeah, yeah, So that's how he's yeah, his bad mathematics is our good fortune basically. <laughs> Yeah, and that's the generosity of uh, of of Krishna of the sadhu. Not only that they see if there was something 
even in previous lives and keeps that in consideration, but also if there's nothing, if you want to put it like that, in a previous lifetime, and there's nothing even in a present lifetime, which will be like a very catastrophic scenario, but even in that extreme case, it is said that we are being seen by, by the divine, by the saintly people, in terms of all that we can be in the future. So that's a very generous approach. Most people in this world will judge us according to our past. Oh, you did that 25 years ago. Yeah, I know, I know you, I know you, I know you. Yeah, she did that 25 years. Like you are that. You cannot be something different. I'm just labeling you and judging you <clears throat> according to something you did almost in a previous lifetime. <laughs> and if some if, if people who have knowledge of previous lifetimes, probably they will be judging each other, like I know that two lifetimes ago you did that. So that's not very generous. <laughs> and some other people is a little bit more generous. They will judge you according to who we are. You are in the present. Still, it's not so generous. But at least they are saying, "Yeah, you are this. You are that now, not the past, but the present." But again, the the ultimate grace of the saintly and, and the divine is seeing us from all that we can be for for our potential. Even if at present you are a disaster from tip to toe, <laughs> they will see, oh, but there is such a bright potential there. As Krishna Chandra said, there is so it's a big snowball of dirt, but they see beyond the dirt and see, wow, there is such a brilliant potential. And they will try to go there to that flame and try to like, you know, like make that flame gradually grow. And of course, if we are if we are seeing with that eye of generosity, the commitment is we should see other people the same way, because it's not fair to say, oh, I like to be seen in that way according to my potential, but then you judge everyone else according to what did they did 20 years ago or even to the present. If we do that, we lose the appreciation of how we are being seen. So it's important that as beautiful as that mercy is, it commits us a lot mm -hmm. uh, to do the same to others. Uh, like when we say, okay, God is loving everyone unconditionally from the start. Oh, how beautiful. Yes, but then you have to relate to every person considering that. <laughs> it's not how beautiful, how he loves me unconditionally. Although how beautiful he's loving everyone else unconditionally, and you should try, try treat each person according to that. That's not so easy. <laughs> yeah. But that's how reality is designed. So we go in that direction. <laughs> Anyhow, thanks for your questions, Shanti. Gandharvika has a question. It, it was a question from yesterday yeah. about the Seva. I don't know if you remember. It's very general. If you can repeat it, I will appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> we heard sometimes about the aim and the seva as a soul in in Vrindavan or in, in Navadvita mm -hmm. and it was like that I felt like yeah but before I can I'm I'm not you know I'm not at the at that point to meditate about 
-hmm. about this and mm -hmm. I felt like what's about this Seva in here mm -hmm. in this moment and mm -hmm. in this life because for me it's like it can happen so fast that you are like um, completely in your ego and you just transfer it in in, in a practice in a like spiritual practice, wishing to to um, serve them in the eternity, mm -hmm. but it's like you you don't get this shifting point from what does it mean really to serve, mm -hmm. and what how can I learn to serve now and here in in this life and in this place where I where. I'm. I am. Mm -hmm. And so it was for me interesting also to hear about this point. Mm. You know, because it's connected. You cannot yeah. meditate about the one thing without living living it um, <coughs> in the real uh -huh. here in yeah. this life. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for your question. And that's important mm -hmm. because as you mentioned, if not, we can use this high meditation, so to say, sometimes as an escape from things that we have to solve and integrate in, in the day in the daily life as part of our project. You now it's very important that we can I don't know if some of us have some human issues unresolved, <laughs> or I don't know, some extreme. No. No, nobody, nobody. Oh, well, then I came to the wrong place. I came to the wrong place. All of you are so perfect. There must be something very wrong here. So my point is, of course, I, I'm not. I'm not saying that overemphasizing like just psycho-emotional healing. And bhakti is something else, but just like on some level, some of us may need to address some, I don't know, unresolved trauma or situation that we feel that get in the way of our practice. No? So as part of our practice, sometimes we need to, to look into that direction and to be humanly open to address and grieve sometimes about things that we need to grieve and heal after that. Because sometimes we, if not, we will enter into this like not just chant Hare Krishna and be happy. And it's like, oh well, between chant Hare Krishna and be, and be happy, there is a parenthesis with lots of considerations. <laughs> so you can really chant and be happy. So, and as I like to mention a few times and in my book a lot, the our goal is not a lila. No, it's a lila which is fully human and fully divine. So we will never get there unless we learn to be fully human and fully divine. And probably the first step is to be learn to be fully human. <laughs> because sometimes we want to be fully divine, but our humanity is half-baked. <laughs> and, 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 and transcendence ends up being a, a rejection, an evasive exercise, uh, and numbing, no? indifference, insensitivity, escape, escape, escape. And we may use all these lofty, high concepts to not ground ourselves in whatever we need to be grounded as, as humans. Mm -hmm. 
in Jungian terms, we need to do some shadow work. <laughs> we need to confront what he may call the, the shadow. Mm-hmm. Or we need to, I mean, we need to be open that sometimes when we start practicing also, some things will will move inside. Mahaprabhu starts saying, what's the very first effect of the chanting? Chitta Dharpana Marjana. Chitta Dharpana Marjana. Chitta, Chitta means Chitta. Chitta means in contemporary language, the subconscious mind. So Chitta Dharpana Marjana means clean the mirror of your subconscious. Like address what's in the subconscious realm, which is like, wow, that's scary for many. No, because we don't know what's there. No, the very definition of subconscious means you are not conscious of that. <laughs> but probably that's affecting many of our movements. So, so of course, we chant and, and, and the name, if we are sincere, naturally pur- purifies so many things that we are not even aware of. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to be as aware as we can of the things that start to happen in the process of chanting. Some things will be moving, coming, emerging, some... Monsters will appear, so to say. <laughs> we need to do something. No, I like to compare the the chitta, like the subconscious mind, like with the shed. You know what's a shed? Like storage shed where you put many times the stuff that you don't know where to put. <laughs> so sometimes you put so many stuff there that the whole shed starts to have a life of its own. <laughs> now you start to hear voices coming from there, some arms coming when you come close, and it's like, I don't know. I won't open that place. I would just like open and throw my things and close quickly. And at that point, I, I will inaugurate another shed and start to do the same thing. <laughs> so that's all the subconscious things that are in the back. No? So, so yeah, the point is practicing bhakti is also in, invites us to be courageous, to be uh, honest about the things that may happen inside of us as we practice the purification waves, no? the ups and downs, like Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur describes in in Madhura Kadamini very nicely, the six stages of Anishtita Vajana Kriya. No? Utsahamai, Ganatarala, all this, no? like the ups and downs, the embarrassing, if you want to put it like that, embarrassing chapters of the devotional life. And every time I speak about those six, I ask the devotees, so who is free? Raise your hand if you have gone through this one. And all hands go up. The second one, two hands go up. And like this, everyone's like doing the wave as we're talking today. I have that one. I have that one. But the point is that Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur is talking about those stages as part of bhakti. This is not the goal, but this the, the fact that you are going through them is confirming that you are on the bhakti journey. So somehow it's glorious. Somehow you should be celebrating. As embarrassing as that may be, and ups and downs, and instability, I don't know, niyamakshama, difficulty to maintain one's vows. Again, I'm not saying that's a goal. Let's break our vows. I'm just saying at some stage, those things may be what we need to go through. And we have to accept that. Now, regarding to your question, this has to do with your question. We have to accept certain things as part of the practice because sometimes we develop this like denial, like this shouldn't be happening, this is wrong, this is not the highest thing. And you can just 
buy for a guilt trip forever if you enter into that mode. If you compare, this is not the highest. If you just compare whatever you are with the highest, <laughs> that would be torture. You follow my point? This is not as how Bhakti in Otaku will, should be, will be dealing with this situation. Yes, I know, but you are not Bhakti in Otaku, so relax for a minute. No. <laughs> and if you're going to get closer to him, first be realistic about where you are. But many times we are not too willing to accept where we are. We don't like us many times. <laughs> no? Yeah, yeah. But why it hurts also? Because if we are aware of the unconditional love of Krishna and the sadhus, why it should hurt? No? If we need that we are already being loved despite all our messiness, why it should hurt? Because it hurts because I'm not able to love okay that that's a legal hurt as long as that is inspiring you to give yourself in a better way no? because if not sometimes this hurting gets like depression and picking the whip and self-loading and so that's not that makes no meaning basically so it's important that yeah whenever we go through those things we become, we remain aware and being loved and being supported and receiving so much. And this that I'm going through is part of the bhakti journey also, no? like, like developing this acceptance. I, not acceptance to the point that I relax and just do not try my best to continue growing, but just to, sometimes there are situations that as much as you make an effort, they are still there. <laughs> And you will pray for mercy, but sometimes Krishna wants you to stay in those moments for some time. No? So you learn some lesson in that particular chapter, and, you, and we may be like, I want to run away from this chapter as soon as possible. And Krishna says, exactly because of that, you have to stay there for some time. No? In other traditions, sometimes they will call this expression like the dark night of the soul which means you are in a chapter where you don't have a clue what's happening there's no point of reference you feel like you feel that krishna disappeared even <laughs> he didn't disappear you know he didn't disappear but you cannot experience him in the usual way why because as the mystics said he's actually getting closer but you are not accustomed to that level of proximity so you think where is krishna i cannot see him because you are used to see Krishna in a certain way, in a certain place, and now Krishna is getting closer, and you look in the same way he used to be, and you say, he's not there, he disappeared. And he's like closer and closer, but you cannot realize that yet. So you're like, what's going on here? <laughs> we should be patient in that moment, no? The Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta will say one symptom of faith is that you will show patience in relation to the arrangement that Krishna is making in your life. You should know he's making an arrangement. He's maintaining each one of his devotees. So he's making arrangements over and over again, but we should be patient when those arrangements are taking place. Because sometimes we want like a quick clarity. Like, what? where is this arrangement taking me for? In, the, in which direction? What? And Krishna he just wants you to stay coexist with mystery for some time. No? 
I, re I really appreciate that also from mystic Christianity. They are a lot about learn to coexist with mystery. That's also in our tradition. Don't try to have everything certain and clear at every moment, but just allow yourself to be in a space of uncertainty. Because faith is not about certainty. Sometimes we think that faith is all about certainty. No? <laughs> I'm telling you just in case, so you don't complain later. <laughs> as, as once Richard Rohr told me when I met him, he told me, what's the opposite of faith? And you know that the usual answer you will give is not the one he's waiting for. <laughs> so maybe the usual answer will be the opposite of faith is doubt. Like, you know, the opposite of faith is certainty. <laughs> because faith means you're coexisting with mystery and you're in the hands of something that you cannot fully comprehend and control. And sometimes it's dark and you don't know what's going on, but it's not bad just dark in the sense you don't know what's happening but you have to trust deeply that's faith a deeper trust in darkness <laughs> so anyhow all these to reply to your question in sense of we have to to allow ourselves to go through all those things and we are you are in a very favorable place for that to happen in proper sangha and company and environment and an introspection and invitation to contemplate and, and yeah being committed not being evasive trying to address whatever comes in on a daily basis instead of just like whew. yeah we have the long-term goal but also we have to have middle-term goals short-term goals because if we just only had the long-term goal that may be a little discouraging because i won't get there in a weekend or something like when this devotee asked Lassidamar, how much may it take? Well, two, three lifetimes. <laughs> so that's long-term goal. But you have to establish middle and short-term goals with that long-term goal in mind. So whatever you are, we are working on a daily basis, it's in the context of that also. As ordinary as that may sound or seem. And many times... The getting closer to that higher ideal starts from what we see as ordinary. I always remember this beautiful quote from Thomas Merton. He will say, your salvation begins in the most ordinary moments of your daily life. What begins there? Your salvation, in his in Christian terms. Your salvation begins in the most ordinary moments of your daily life. Of course, his point is, there are no ordinary moments. So if you perceive something as ordinary, then you have some work to do there. And your salvation is starting there. And you're getting closer to your ultimate goal. Because ultimately, there's nothing ordinary. So the fact that we see something as ordinary means you have to work on that. <laughs> so anyhow, that's as practical as I can get in replying to your question. <laughs> yeah, thank you for the question. Something to add, Christian Chandler? No? Okay. So, any other question, any comments, or thoughts? Anything? Yes. Yes, I have two questions. Okay. Also, and um, <coughs> I think maybe you gave some of the answer to the first question, and I really 
please help me if I don't get clear enough. We discussed it already during the lunch. Um, it's about, um, you mentioned that um, the Kripa, the grace um, from Krishna comes through the devotees that are already connected with Krishna. So if one um, likes a devotee who is connected to Krishna and devotee likes me or us, then this love will expand. So, but sometimes I don't feel the appreciation for a sad. I, I feel angry or something like that. <laughs> and then I get into a conflict because I think, oh, I should like everything, but I don't like it. And then I feel bad because I know I should, but I, I'm not at the point. <laughs> what to do? What to do? It really makes me crazy. <laughs> makes you more angry now. Yes. <laughs> because this God forces me to, you know what I mean? It gets me into a conflict. So you have to figure out that directly with Krishna. You have to. Yes, I try. I try. Have a good fight with him and see what. what yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Lalita nature coming again. <laughs> yeah, of course, how to say, of course. I mean, we, all know, we know each other on some level, but I don't know you that much in detail as to say, okay, I know why you don't like that sadhu. I, I can, so I cannot give a specific answer yes because i don't know first of all what's the reason that makes you not liking a particular vaishnav and also i don't know what's that vaishnav's behavior maybe your anger maybe justify on some level <laughs> i don't know again we are talking about in a very generic way here yes so and also i think that when you are saying i know i should like that person I think the idea is that we don't like someone because we sh know we should. No, that's not so. It's like powerful. if, if sorry, it's not very powerful. Yeah, it's like if I say, actually, I don't like you at all, but I know I should like you, so I'll try to like you, but just because I know I should. It's like uh, you. <laughs> it's not very romantic. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I think it's important that, that we, we get gradually, it may take time, but to that place where where we don't like someone because we should, because that's actually not liking too much that person. No? Like, but, but I mean, I perceive in your question also the, the desire of, I will really like, hopefully, I will really like to, to like the person, not because I know I should, but just in a natural way. But as we were talking before, sometimes... We may have our own limits for whatever reason, or the other person may, again, may have done something to deserve our unliking. <laughs> but sometimes, again, what the other person is doing may be, again, I'm talking in general, I'm not talking about any specific case because nothing specific has been brought. 
but sometimes we also may need to separate between substantial failures that a person may commit and make us take some distance or something more external and relative that for some reason we don't like and create an obstacle. No, I'm not saying this is your case, but I've seen that a few times. Like, for example, sometimes I've seen people that only because I'm a sannyasi, they like me. Or don't like you. I was going to that same <laughs> I was going to that place after that. Other people, only because I'm a sannyasi, they dislike me. They don't know me. They don't know me. But just they label me according to the color of my cloth, which is, of course, absolutely superficial <laughs> in both cases. No? It's not like, okay, you can praise me because I'm a sannyasi, but don't dislike me. No, the two are two sides of the same coin, basically. Uh, but the point is sometimes, for whatever reason, someone does something or is something, <laughs> and it triggers in us something unresolved that has nothing to do with that person, that has something to do with something we haven't resolved. And we need to address that, because if not every time we see a sannyasi or every time we see whatever <laughs> that may be, <laughs> something will be triggered and we will feel some like obstacles. And it's not about the person. The person may be nice, beautiful, <laughs> but something gets in the way. Again, I'm not saying that's always the case. That may be the case. Or sometimes as we were talking with Krishna Chand and Udab some days ago, sometimes someone may be a very genuine sadhu, but make his his or her presentation in a certain cultural packaging, which somehow clashes with our cultural lens. <laughs> and we will experience some short-circuiting in the transmission of the message. <laughs> Receptor is the, the one who is given the message, not reaching there. <laughs> and, and sometimes we have to be able, and that may take time, to separate that and perceive beyond, behind, beyond this cultural layer, there is something totally genuine and sincere. And I have to be able to pick that, saragrahi, to be an essence seeker and not get trapped into the words he used or certain example that was given or some, you follow? That's another possibility. Or again, I say sometimes our anger may be more justified because some person may be really, I don't know, deviated in something he or she did or done. And even a perfected soul mm -hmm. can have some mistakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, each case may be different. That was, I'm, I cannot address any specific situation. I'm just bringing different possibilities and one has to discern about, okay, each case, this is this, this is this, what's going on here. Of course, always we should be first, how to say, introspective in ourselves for being quick and saying, I don't lie because you are this. Because as we say before, <coughs> don't forget, Krishna is loving everyone unconditionally, especially biased toward his devotees. So before like seeing what I dislike in that person is, I should remember Okay, Krishna is loving that person unconditionally also. So that helps us to put in context whatever I may be feeling. I'm not saying that you repress what you feel because that's also not healthy. 
no like i cannot i shouldn't be feeling this this is wrong at some point there's place for that of course you, we may like to be compassionate and pray for everyone i mean as i mentioned a few times in, in my own life i've gone through a few situations with some people that they really hurt me and they i don't know defamed me and lied about me and mistreated me and abused me technically and i was kind of immediately trying to okay but they gave me also so much i want to be grateful i want to go to the compassionate side i want to be well wishing i want to pray for them but very soon realized yes that's nice but first i have to be angry have to be overwhelmed i have to cry i have to go through all that emotional thing that i have to go so i can finally reach the place of genuine empathy compassion forgiveness <laughs> At least in my case, I'm not saying everyone has to do like I did. But most of us generally have to go through those chapters before reaching like the, how to say, divinely transcendental vision of every person. <laughs> That's very nice and romantic, but sometimes we kind of just like force ourselves to, to follow, to see everything perfect and divine. And I mean, unless you are a Newton Bhagavat, you cannot see in that way you cannot force yourself to have that vision so so yeah i would suggest that no be don't repress your emotions but also don't don't be fully convinced this is the only truth no but be open to discern about from which place this anger is coming no? is this triggering something that goes beyond the actual person is there a pattern in my life that every time something like this happens boom that's what Jung will say when he was asked how to start to glimpse at my subconscious he will say try to pay attention to your daily life and certain situation that pattern that trigger some common pattern and try to follow the thread of that and see what's behind it i don't know if that helps again it's a very generic answer that may apply to different situations, possibilities. But of course, we don't want to be angry with Krishna. We don't want to be angry with the Vaishnav. We don't want to be angry. <laughs> we may need to, if we are feeling angry, we need to acknowledge that again. We kind of just like, oh, I shouldn't be angry because you repress that. You suppress, you depress, depression. No? Depression comes from pressuring something down. Like I shouldn't be putting something down and it's, you know what form it takes in time. No? You explode or, or you implode, one of the two. And you don't want any of those. No? But again, you also want to express that in a healthy way, not just jump on every person that you feel angry at and why are you saying that? I don't like. <laughs> so. Um, how to. One, one question him is related. Can yeah. I add something? A little yeah. thought. Just, yeah. Um, because the verse we discussed was, I love him. And it's which verse? Which verse? Ananya Mamata, Vishnu Mamata, Prema Sangat. It means, I love Krishna. And this is quite easy because Krishna is all knowing 
all powerful, all beautiful, never has mistakes. It's like perfection. So, but out of love to him, expand it even to imperfection. This is quite a deep step. You know, if I say only perfection is okay in myself or in, you know, it's, it's quite easy. But I want to accept imperfection also out of love for him. And this is like, it's just an, a, an expansion of the love towards him. It's a natural process. And I will have some process in me that imperfection makes. I see mistakes, I see this, hey, why you do like this? But then I can just see the great, the grand perspective. Oh, Radha and Krishna, my love towards you wants to expand and to embrace also the imperfection in me and in everything else. And I think this is a, a very, very interesting process. And if every devotee around me would be completely perfect, I think we wouldn't have the, uh, this growing opportunity. Yeah. I think it's, it's even something wonderful. Yeah. It offers us the chance to offer unconditional love. Because we're talking about Krishna is loving us unconditionally. Unconditional means including imperfection. Because if I told you I love you only if you are perfect, that's conditional love. That's not unconditional. And that's not love at all. <laughs> so the real nature of love has to include imperfection, as you say. No? The actual perfection includes imperfection, integrates, allows imperfection to nourish it. Yeah. yeah. I remember a few years I gave a series of lectures called Divine Imperfect on the Damodar Lila, which at least on some level seems, Krishna seems so imperfect. He's lying, he's stealing, he's cheating, he's afraid, he's running, he's tired. It all seems limited and imperfect, but the result of that is the the experience of love is increasing more and more and more. And more. <laughs> so even imperfection is having a role there no? in the context of love. Srila Siyamaraj will say that. Srila Siyamaraj will say perfection is a demand of the ego and love only demands love. The heart does not demand perfection. The ego wants perfection, but the heart wants to love. No? So, and we are already being loved from that place. So that's again the commitment to how do I, I extend that unconditionality that is coming to me to others, which of course again doesn't mean I don't know if I'm seeing someone doing an abuse, oh, I should love unconditionally and allow the abuse to continue. That's not the point. But even if we point at some abuse and somehow or other we have to work to love that person <laughs> in one way or another. <laughs> hmm? to see who the person is beyond all those layers, as we were saying before, no? to see the person for his, her potential, as we say before. At present, you are a monster. In potential, you are glorious. <laughs> I know that's difficult. It's difficult to say like, I don't know, someone like Adolf Hitler. <laughs> 
as an atma in potential. Beautiful. But I know it's difficult because we, we will get stuck. No, but that guy did this and it's the worst possible thing to do. Yes, but still the, the potential of the Atma is still there. Maybe some of us was Adolf Hitler in a few lifetimes ago. You never know. <laughs> and we are receiving another chance. I'm saying all this to break your, your structures and we, or, or we ourselves observe how we react to all these things. <clears throat> Just an elaboration on Christian Chandra's point. Thank you. You had a related question, Pepe? Uh, I got answered. Oh, it, it happens usually. Was, yes. was about how to change the pattern. Mm. But now I understand that it's embracing. And I think that maybe my new question would be what can I do in practice to constantly forgive? myself for the mistakes i'm making mm -hmm. and not going into these guilt trips mm -hmm. and going through acceptance uh, surrendering to this uh, unconditional love that mm -hmm. krishna is giving to me so i can grow mm -hmm. so how to forgive or how can i make it a process in the actual moment instead of mm -hmm. i have one here for translator yes <clears throat> so yeah I will say that it's important to forgive ourselves because sometimes and this doesn't mean that we are being like permissive because also you can fall into that not like you just like lie and abuse and hurt everyone but I have to forgive myself I don't want guilt I mean, there is place for guilt if you did some very wrong thing, if you don't experience some form of guilt for your crime, you become a monster and it's normalized. You won't feel you're a monster. You feel like I'm doing a favor to the planet Earth <laughs> because there is no filter of, of guilt. But we are talking when I say guilt trip and all that is just like exaggerated self-flagellation, so to say. <laughs> So, so I will say that, as we mentioned, the first, for me at least, how, how it works is, of course, if I do something wrong, I, I want to, to take responsibility for that. And if I hurt some person, I, I hopefully I feel bad about it. Not in a masochistic way, but in a naturally sensitive, reciprocal way. If I make you suffer... I should be suffering for, and that suffering has to purify me so I don't do the same thing again. That's that's a symptom of a civilized human being, so to say. What to speak of a transcendentalist? You know? But how to forgive ourselves? I will say, well, begin by knowing that the Supreme Lord is forgiving you. He's loving you unconditionally. Again, not as a way to, okay, I can do whatever I want, but as a very humbling a moving situation like despite so many mistakes and things I, I've, I've probably done in so many lifetimes fortunately i i cannot recall my previous lifetime that will be too much <laughs> i have enough with this one but bhagavan is still there it's not that bhagavan Paramatma put the sign in my heart like i'm done with this this is too much no look for some other inner witness i'm done with Exit. you yeah goodbye no he's still there 
tolerant, patient. So we are being forgiven constantly by, by the strength of unconditional love. So that should give us the, the inspiration to, to forgive ourselves, so to say. Now, if God can forgive us, are we, are we on top of him that I cannot forgive? Although he can forgive me, I won't forgive me. I mean, who we are no, in comparison to his forgiveness, so to say. And of course, on a more personal level, if we perceive that it's very hard for us to not forgive ourselves, again, the question is, why? Now, what, what, what may be the pattern? Because again, each case is unique. You know, some of us may come from a, I don't know. I mean, most, I mean, I couldn't say that most of us has come from a childhood which is 0% free of trauma. That's not possible, basically. <laughs> There's always something. <laughs> and I'm not saying that there was some literal abuse. Sometimes it's just a situation that you experience it as traumatic. It's not that it, in itself it was a monstrous thing. But how we process it, and some, but in some cases, some of us I know pretty good amount of people and even devotees who, from their childhood, they were told basically that they were worthless, indirectly or directly. No, so of course, if you hear that a few times as a child, you get convinced about that. <laughs> There's so many people out there that they feel I'm worthless. No, I'm not worthy of love. I'm not worthy of, and they live their whole life like that. Even if they practice spiritual life, they are constantly struggling, struggling, trying to deserve love. No? And if they fail, it's like, now Krishna is totally angry with me. He has rejected me. And, and the whole thing about that is like, it's ridiculous because how can you deserve love? Love, again, is unconditional. <laughs> it's already there coming to you. So, but sometimes we, we are practiced with this idea, I have to earn love have through merit. And that's exhausting. <laughs> love is too much to be deserved. So, but yeah, sometimes this happens because we bring a whole pattern from sometimes childhood of I'm worthless, so I cannot forgive myself and whatever mistake we make is like the worst possible thing on planet earth and and Krishna is like come on this is too much no relax a little bit so I think it's, it's important that we again remind ourselves of how we are being loved unconditionally by God to surround by people who is supporting of us and, and loving us in a committed proper way and reminding us of these things when we go too much on that guilt trip uh, and do whatever inner research we may need to do if there is some unresolved chapter that makes us, triggers us in that direction sometimes, no? Uh, and, I, and that without going to the extreme of losing the capacity of experiencing healthy guilt when we do something really wrong because that can happen also so it's like because we tend to go to extremes right <laughs> sometimes i go on a guilt trip and then i go on a free guilt trip so i just do whatever i want and nobody can tell me anything because i'm free i don't want to suffer i don't want to be traumatized but 
again, the same another side of the same coin. So we want the middle path. Yeah. Just some thoughts that come. I'm not sure. There's always one thought that comes. Just a little thing. There's a famous verse. Samohasaja Vipramahatam Muhurtam Kshanama Pivasudevam Machintayat. What is the greatest calamity that can happen? The, the worst thing I could do. And sometimes we think, you know, I do this and I do this. But the verse is saying, for a second, forgetting Krishna. <laughs> so, and what is the basis for that? Is a certain remorse, regret. So, the regret really on a basic is not just if I'm doing wonderful things or little strange things in this world, but the the, the point of a change is I forgot myself and I lived really a few moments out of connection of reality. So I, for me, it's always the point of a remorse, of a change, is not coming from small things. Oh, I did this and this but really first from the big thing because most of the days we didn't do really really bad things today i didn't kill anyone you know and, uh, <laughs> but still there is a point of ex of an extreme change of an extreme regret because i lived outside of the real need of the soul and then I think I can throw myself in an ocean of an invitation of a divine love, which means forgiveness. I don't know if it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So you had a second question. Yes. So maybe we can conclude with that one so it's not so late or, or we or maybe we'll we have time yeah okay so i'm allowed to do a second sure. you're allowed oh, okay um yes yeah um i uh was wondering um we, we heard a lot of time the symptoms of divine madness or separation pain of separation and stuff and the stories where they were banging their head against the wall and they want to kill themselves in the river or something like this and um rolling on the ground and <laughs> i was wondering if you would share with us um your allegorical explanation of these you, you said there are these three um types uh, yeah literal yeah. allegorical esoteric yes and yeah if you could share with us the allegorical like how we can extract some teaching yes for our stage from from those situations yes just to begin with 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Of course, if you can explain also the really deep meaning, great, but yeah, with the allegorical, it would be a good step. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, thanks for the... Aha, um, habe gefragt, ob er uns die allegorische Bedeutung erzählen könnte von Trennungsschmerz und von diesen Zuständen, wo sich jemand am Boden rollt, äh, aus Trennung oder den Kopf an die Wand schmeißt oder sich in der Ganga ertränken will. Äh, ja, was jetzt dieser Art Trennungsschmerz auf der allegorischen Ebene bedeutet. Ja, und vielleicht kommt noch was Tieferes, aber... So, yeah, the examples you are giving deal with, as you mentioned, madness in divine love. No, so, so how much we can understand that from our present situation? Because we. That's complicated. I mean, that's basically impossible. <laughs> Unless we we become that mad, we won't be able to fully connect with that madness, so to say. No? And we are now experiencing another form of madness, so to say, no? which is the madness without divine love. <laughs> uh, sometimes I like to say free will means you choose which type of madness do you want. <laughs> Or you become mad for Krishna in love, or you become mad for everything else without Krishna, no? which is not very... And there are, of course, in between chapters of that, but to put it in very simple words. So, so yeah, I will say that when we hear those descriptions, it's generally unavoidable that for us to try to figure out what's that, but we will... The only reference we have is our own experience, which is not, at least mine, of divine love. So the danger there is that we start to project our own type of madness <laughs> without divine love into the madness of divine love. And we will say, I don't want that. <laughs> That's And I know one person, literally, once in Argentina, he told me, that he he once I don't know probably he himself or someone else started to talk too much at him to him in the first beginning days about Mahaprabhu in Gambira <laughs> and like banging his head on the wall and perspiring blood all this type of satric baths that you're like what's that no I mean even Rupa Goswami in, in Bhaktira Samrita Sindhu he's describing some of these satric baths and say. And there are and there are others, but I won't talk about them because they are too much. No, like like nobody will get it, so I won't go there. Even Rupa Goswami saying that while writing back the rest and British Sindhu. So this devotee in Argentina received so much of that, the madness of Mahaprabhu and crying and crying and rolling and hitting and banging and bleeding. <laughs> and he say, and his conclusion was, I don't want that. I mean, that's that's what you want for eternity. I mean, again, he filtered that all that narrative with his own experience of what does it mean to bleed, to hit your head, to roll on the ground, to cry. So he said, I don't want nothing of that. And he ended up, he became a Buddhist. He went to that side, to that place, no? Like, no, no suffering. 
it was too much. <laughs> so it's important that yeah, when we hear these descriptions, we we understand they belong to a realm, to a category that I don't have experience. And the more I try to understand from my place and experience, the more probably I will distort what's going on. So I would say that's one way of <laughs> deriving some allegorical meaning. So like, I'm not there. That's too much. That's that's just for me to know that something like that exists. <laughs> and, and, and that's an invitation for me to fully understand that by developing divine love myself. Because if not, it's kind of the password. It's not there yet to access. No? And to remain humble about not being too sure that I understand actually what's going on there. So sometimes many sections of the scripture are like that. They're like they depict something, but also they are proving us. I mean, how much do we jump into that and, okay, I figure out this means this, not, or we are like, this too high, this too much. I'm not there. I don't understand what's going on. I have to, but I understand that's sacred, that's divine. I, I understand it's not ordinary as I experience my tears or whatever, bleeding. So I will put that on, on its corresponding pedestal, but won't venture and rush into that quickly because I know I can make a disaster with that. So I know how to take my distance and worship that and try to deal with the... Because again, that's the, the highest highest peaks of divine love, the madness. But before reaching there, we have to go through other levels. No? Mahaprabhu is in the Gambira, but that's his anti-lila. No? He doesn't begin in Adi-lila doing that. He begins in a way that is more relatable to us, <laughs> doing things that we can, oh, okay, I can do that. I can engage in Sankirtan. <laughs> I won't hit my head on the wall, and I cannot do that. Because of course, it's not something that you plan to do. That will happen as a byproduct, anubhav, no? Like a symptom, consequence of having internally something so intense that all your bodily functions collapse. Again, that's how, as much as we can talk about that. No, there's some such a strong feeling that this body is no longer enough. It cannot contain the intensity of emotion, so it starts to collapse in so many ways. No, like crying, like fainting, like rolling, like shouting, like dying in separation. Of we cannot imitate that. No, I cannot force myself. Okay, I want to feel that I I'm dying in separation from Krishna. Probably I get depressed or something <laughs> if I force myself, like like from my head. Now I I have to. It's not a have to anything. So, but the the the, the teaching from that will be like. Go back to where you are. <laughs> you are not there. Go back to where you are. Be honest about where you are. Engage in sadhana properly. And in time, everything will be clear and revealed. You know? From which place that's happening. From which place that's going on. And meanwhile, every time we hear that, we have to be careful not to jump and conclude quickly, oh, I know what that means. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> That's the realm of divine madness. I mean, that's the greatest mystery. So if we are humble, we, we won't jump into saying, I know what the divine mystery is. I mean, come on. <laughs> so 
but that's what comes to mind in this in this precise moment like will say he says when we are when we approach the realm of the highest love we have to show reverence to that that love is not about reverence it's about intimacy but we have to show some reverence for that realm of highest intimacy because it's so high so deep that we cannot just like enter with familiarity. Oh, I will take this. It's like a product in the supermarket. Give me, give me one manjuri bab. Give me one anubab. And mm-hmm. We have to approach that with the utmost veneration, and that's how we'll be actually participating in that eventually. Krishna Chandra, something. No. Grand final. Put some closing. Yeah, we'll conclude the QA here. And tomorrow we will meet. Tomorrow in the morning we'll be also celebrating Srila Haridas Thakur's Tiruba Mahotsav. So another Mahotsav from Avirbhav to Tiruvav. Today Avirbhav of Thakur, tomorrow Tiruvav of Haridas Thakur, which is a very interesting portal to enter <laughs> so we'll venture let's see where the waves takes us <laughs> but for today we put harikata to rest sri sri gurgadadar juki jai sri sri radha govinda juki jai abirbhat mahotsatit sri thakur bhaktinath ki jai gaur bhakta vrind ki jai gaur premanand hari hari bo Panchakalpataru, Sakripas, and Dupe, Vachapatitanam, Kuvanaki, Vaishnavi, Nanta Koti Vaishnavi, and the Kija, Hari Hari, 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 H